Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is producer Lan Lee welcoming you to today's Blue Barrel Conversation distributed through NBN. If you want to catch all of our episodes, you can search for the Blue Barrel Podcast, that's Blue the Color, B-E-R-Y-L, or find all of our episodes on PierceSalguero.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to The Blue Barrel, a podcast for intelligent conversations about Buddhism, Asian medicine, and embodied spirituality. I'm your host, Dr. Pierce Salguero, a professor of Asian studies and health humanities at Penn State's Abington College outside of Philadelphia. Today, I sit down with Paula Arai, a scholar of Japanese Zen, gender, and healing ritual. Paula is an inspiration to me in the way that she blends critical analysis and compassion in her work. In this episode, we talk about how her journey into Zen began with her relationship with her Japanese mother. We also talk about everyday Japanese healing rituals, as well as the ethics of empathetic scholarship. We then talk about how Paula's care for relationships has shaped her five books. And along the way, we touch on the centrality of women in Buddhism and the challenges of facing misogyny and sexism in academia. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you want to hear more from experts on Buddhist medicine and related topics, subscribe to Blue Barrel for monthly episodes. Well, Paula, it's great to see you. It's been years since we saw each other face to face. And so yeah. with COVID and living on the other end of the country and so forth, it's it's been yeah. a long time. So it's really fabulous to see you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been really excited to have you on. You're one of the first people that I, when I decided I wanted to have a podcast, you're one of the first people I thought of to interview. Can you just quickly introduce yourself and let us know what you're up to these days? Sure. I'm Paula Arai and I got my Buddhist, academic Buddhist studies training at Harvard with some wonderful mentors, Nagatomi Sensei and Wolford Cantwell Smith, among others. And they set me on a trajectory to take people's lives seriously. I'm just leaving a position at Louisiana State University. And now I'm moving to a new position that is with the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, California. And there the title is uh, an honor because I think it's the only one that a chair named after Japanese Buddhist nuns, the Eshin-ni and Kakushin-ni chair in women in Buddhist studies. So do you remember where we met? I was trying to think. I, I, I know it was a I conference, didn't... but I don't remember which one it was. It was in Leeds. Maybe it was like 2014 or 15, maybe something like that. That uh, moment that I first met you was so memorable for me. I was a junior scholar. I hadn't gotten tenure yet. And, you know, I was used to a certain kind of way that scholars present themselves in scholarly communities and at conferences. And there's usually a strong effort to project a certain kind of objectivity and distance from the material and a certain kind of critical stance, particularly as a young scholar, particularly from Johns Hopkins. I think it was just my my training in the way that I was kind of uh, professionalized or socialized in graduate school. And uh, I had never heard anybody speak at an academic conference the way that I heard you at that at that uh, conference in Leeds. And, and when you stood up, I don't even remember what, what your presentation was about. And I, I just remember the way that your presentation hit me. And it was so poetic. 
and so lyrical. And it just struck such a deep chord with me to hear you speak. I could just feel the compassion that was coming out of you during during your presentation. I was just so moved by what I saw you do in that presentation that I was like, that's the kind of scholar that I want to be, the kind of scholar that is critical and has the critical thinking skills and the analytical skills, but that also isn't afraid to be a full human being in a professional setting, to come as a full person with their heart and their arms wide open. So I, I really, I, I don't think I ever said that to you before, but I'm really grateful to you for sort of modeling for me uh, a different way to be a scholar in the world. And I really appreciate that. Well, I so appreciate hearing that because at the time I was not familiar with UK Buddhist studies and you were I think it's fair to say probably the only warm face in the room. I think others were responding with a, a bit of a numbness, like, I don't know what to do with this. So it was nice to hear at least somebody received it positively. And I have wanted to move what counts as rigorous scholarship. That's been a mainstay of my whole approach. Being an ethnographer and being female, I am working mostly with women in the field that not to essentialize being female, but there was so much to the Buddhist tradition that doesn't become part of the, the scholarly discussion because of the mode in which scholarship is done. And in order to convey what I was learning in the field, I had to find a different modality, different approach. I often think of it as if you're just doing texts, that's like a food critic who only reads recipes and never tastes the food. And so I wanted to uh, focus on what does the food taste like, not to discount the things you can get from recipes, but the tradition is more than that. And so I have been focused on conveying that, opening that up for the field. Yeah, for sure. And since that time, I've gone and gone back and read uh, your publications and you'd been doing that for quite a while before we met. And and I think one of the things that really strikes me about your, your ethnographic work, your publications on Japanese religions is just really the the empathy and the, the the nuanced empathy that you bring to your descriptions of practice and your descriptions of of these women that you work with i think it 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 comes out in every paragraph on, in the book that you're you're not here to sort of like objectively analyze them and you know use their experience to write a book to get ahead in the in the academy uh, it, it's very obvious that you feel empathetically connected with them and you're trying to bring that relationship out in the work as well as the ethnographic details and, and analysis. Well, my first mentor in graduate school, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, he wrote a book called The Meaning and End of Religion. And in one of his main points was that you must be friends with the people you are studying. And if religious traditions are about people. And if you don't engage with the people, then you will miss the heart of what, why the people are committed to the practices and teachings they are. And so I took that very seriously. And, but it was a challenge to navigate uh, being friends and the academy, even though he was a senior scholar, it was not common, especially in Buddhist studies and perhaps especially in East Asian Zen studies, to bring the heart in because it was seen as not rigorous. And I think you just miss so much of the tradition because what happens on the ground is so much messier and it's not everybody sitting with their back straight and still and silent doing meditation. So I was looking at what do they do then in their homes, in their daily lives. And Zen looked very different when I examined that. Yeah, definitely. So let's come back to talking about your books. I, I want to 
go into them in a little bit of detail. But first, I think it would be helpful for our listeners just to know a little bit more about your background, about where where you started with your interest in Buddhism. Was it something that was that was in your family when you were growing up? Well, my mom is Japanese and came over to the U.S. after the war in the, in the late 50s. She was one of the, actually the first to be naturalized as a U.S. citizen after they changed the law, allowing Japanese to be naturalized U.S. citizens. My father is uh, Anglo-American from Detroit, and they actually lived in Japan and married in a Shinto shrine, living on a sailboat, avoiding the military police because it was illegal in those days, right after the war, for U.S. and Japanese citizens to be married. And then eventually they moved to the States 10 years after they were married, and I was born in Detroit. So the whole my father had gone to Japan in order to begin the healing after the World War II. And so my family has been focused on how do we love each other with all our differences. Yeah, that's beautiful. When it became a conscious thing was I was a religious studies major in college and they had these oral exams and written exams for majors. So you had to write your own, analyze yourself and write your own worldview. And I was majoring in Christianity. I was a Bible-carrying Christian. You know, I grew up in a very social activist, justice-centered church in downtown Detroit, and King had even spoken there. And so Christianity was all about how do you live in a way that is loving. And so when my professors read my paper, which I took very seriously. They said, Paula, this isn't Christianity. It's Buddhist. And I'm like, but my mother never told me about Buddhism. And then I realized that it was in the way she did everything, the way she thought, her values. So I wanted to understand, so how did that happen? That I could never talked about Buddhism, never studied it, and yet my professors are analyzing me saying I'm Buddhist when I was self-consciously a Christian. And that helped me understand my family, myself, and how people are living out their values in daily life. So that has been the focus of my interest. So did your professors, after you wrote this essay and they, they told you that it seemed to suggest more more Buddhist influence than Christian influence. Did they convince you to switch from Christianity to Buddhism as your topic of academic study or I don't know? <laughs> well, so what happened, what really was the catalyst for me to, I went into comparative religion, but the catalyst was my violin teacher suggested I do that. And I took the hint <laughs> that I wasn't going to make it as a violinist. So I went into religious studies. And uh, for me, it was clear I had to do comparative religion and focus mostly on the Buddhist tradition, although I kept doing Christian theology and American religious history as my so-called minor, right up to the dissertation when I focused on uh, Japan. So at that time, were you already practicing Buddhism? I, I don't know. Do you identify as a Buddhist? And did you at some point make that shift to being quote unquote Buddhist at, at some well, point in college? So yes, I, I, I do consider myself a Buddhist now, but I, I guess the label is still a little awkward just because I don't like labels because they reify. But as I understood more and more how people learn their way of living, their values, their, the teachings that guide them in the home growing up. So when did I become Buddhist? I mean, I think in a way it was, I, I was just raised that way, although not conscious. And I think of oh, all kinds of things I do all day long that are informed by that, are shaped by that. It's, you know, what I carry in my heart when I'm cooking, when I'm cleaning. So it's not all the formal practices. I do have a, a Buddhist altar in my home, which is very important to me. I did not grow up with one. I 
I guess I'm a Buddhist, if you're looking from the outside. <laughs> so you wrote your dissertation on these uh, Japanese nuns, and this this eventually became your first book, published in 1999, called Women Living Zen. And that started off a, a series of publications that you've written since then that relate to Zen Buddhism. But like you've been saying, the lived aspect of Zen Buddhism, the everyday aspect, the maybe the domestic aspect, the, the practical aspects of, of of Zen, as opposed to the doctrinal and the textual, the focus on meditation that we usually associate with scholarship on Zen. So I guess in terms of this podcast, our interests in uh, medicine, healing related topics, I don't remember. Was there was there content in the first book that related to healing? I didn't use that word, but I certainly understand the monastic path as a path of healing. That seeing the Buddhist tradition, you know, what is enlightenment but healing from the delusions, the greed, the hatred, and to stop suffering. Does it mean that it stops maybe the pain of an injury or an illness, but you can stop the suffering that can so easily ride the coattails of pain? Yeah. And so that, that became, I think, a major theme in your later works, right? I think when I met you, you had recently published the second book, Bringing Zen Home, which right. I think was 2011. That sounds right. Yeah, because of the field research and because of working on healing on that one, I I had to establish very deep trusting relationships. So it was like 14 years of working on that book on domestic practices of healing. And when I first decided to work on this book, I was writing the grant applications in English, of course. And so I'm using the word healing. And then when I first went to Japan, I was speaking with Buddhist scholars and using the gerund version of the word heal, yashi. And the scholars understood, it seemed, like what I was talking about. And then I went to start, it was an ethnography, and then I went and started talking with the women. And it's like they had no idea what I was talking about. And they said, well, don't Christians do this yashi, this healing? It's not a Buddhist thing. And I'm like, oh, no, what do I do now? And so serendipitously, I got pneumonia. So I got sick, got pneumonia, hospitalized, had to cancel all my interviews. We, the relationship is very new. And so I had to show this vulnerability. And that was the best thing that could have happened methodologically. Because now they know what to do with a sick person. And I had a two-year-old son, just the two of us in this little apartment, and they know how to deal with that. So it set the trajectory of the relationship on they are helping me. And so I couldn't put a microphone in front of them and say, what do you think about healing? They could just show me by doing. And it was more in their bodies than what they could verbalize. And also I experimented with different conjugations and I found a conjugation, thankfully, that was revealed that they were seeing this phenomenon of the word English healing gets points to is it's all about the complex causes and conditions that someone is a part of that the universe is supporting you, which is a very Buddhist-based understanding. The word yashi was not popular at all. So this other conjugation of the verb that invokes the causes and conditions and gratitude, I call it the gratitude tense, the no linguist says that, but when I use that tense, they all understood. It just opened the floodgates of, yes, I've experienced the universe supporting me. And then later that word iyashi became popular in Japan. But thank goodness I caught it before it was popular because that's when I saw their understanding of healing is very, very Buddhist. It's not cause and effect. You do A in order to get B. You respond 
to the conditions you're in with gratitude, with respect, with compassion, and it's a way of living. And so I was able to interact with them for so many years that they could show me how they do this with their lives. They weren't consciously, I want to say, have some method, but that was my job as the scholar to analyze what their path is. They just live their lives. So I did come up with eight activities that they all seem to share. I worked with 12 different women, again, for like 14 years and got to know them very well. And so it was a small sample, but it was very in-depth. And I went back to them with my analysis of the eight activities. And shockingly, so these women don't know, no one knew who else was involved in the study. And 10 of the 12 women said, I'm missing two. One was to enjoy life. I had been single parent publishing, like enjoying life. I'm just ticking off my to-do list all day long. Joy was not on my to-do list. And then I was also missing something I couldn't even fathom, accepting reality as it is. I thought that's just for Buddhas. I just like, who can accept reality as it is? How can you even perceive it, much less accept it? And so they did say their role models for that are like Kannon, the goddess of compassion, and that it's not so much a perception issue as it is an open heart, an open mind to receive without judgment, without criticism, and not try to control everything that's going on. So those were the, everyone added those two. And I thought, wow, so maybe there really is this path because they recognized it when they were given the specific activities and they all noted the two that were missing. Mm, Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that's jumping out of that story for me is just how patient and attentive and I would say sensitive you have to be to spend 14 years with a group of women as they're going through. I mean, I remember from the book, they're going through all kinds of Uh, events in their lives. And some of them are rather difficult, not only you becoming sick, but them becoming sick and other kinds of troubles. Just the amount of patience to, as a scholar, spend 14 years just allowing these insights to bubble up from the experiences that you're witnessing and the experiences that you're participating in, as opposed to bringing in sort of like a top-down schema that you've gotten from a text somewhere and sort of like using the ethnographic material to confirm that, but but actually, on the contrary, very slowly allowing this, this picture to arise up out of the experience. It's a kind of, maybe we could call it slow scholarship, right? You're not rushing to try to put out a publication to, to make sense of this really, really quickly. And I think that that patience and that sensitivity really comes out in the, in the writing of that mm-hmm. book and, and in a lot of your work more generally, but that, that in, the, in this book, it's really, I think, highlighted. But how did you initially connect with them and start that that ethnographic research off. Yeah, so my first book was on monastic women and I had thought I wanted to do another monastic tradition and then my mother passed away. And I had done a lot of work on ritual studies, so I had all these ideas in my head. And I knew that when a person passes away in Japanese, especially Soto Zen, that they are understood to become a Buddha. And so the moment my mother passed away, I'd been caring for her and at home and had an infant son at the time as well. So uh, impermanence and the complexity of love was very much everywhere. And the nun that I consider my teacher, she said to call the moment my mother passed away. And so I called her and she walked me through rituals that you do when someone passes. And part of that is to offer incense to the person. They are now a a Buddha. And so in my head, I'm thinking about, okay, this is the ritual. 
But at that moment when I was lighting the incense, it threatened to be the loneliest, most difficult moment in my life. But then when I put the incense, the lit incense into the burner, suddenly I was connected to all people who had lost a loved one and lit a stick of incense upon their passing. And all the people in the far future that will do that. And I thought, oh my gosh, there is this profound healing power in doing just a simple gesture that connects you to so many things and that holds you, supports you, and heals you. And so that's when the understanding of the healing power of ritual went from being a theoretical concept to a way of living. And so that's the story that I told the women. So I totally exposed my heart from the very beginning. I thought I'm asking them to share the most. When you deal with healing, you're dealing with people opening about their deepest pain. And so I thought if I'm not willing to show my pain and my vulnerability, how can I ask them? So that's how I started each of the meetings with the women was sharing this story of what I wanted to understand more of what other people are doing to help them be supported and healed getting through the vicissitudes of life. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. Thanks for sharing. And and so different than the ethnographic methods course that I took when I was in school. I mean, are there are there uh, ethnographic methodologies that sort of support this kind of really intimate sharing and and heart to heart connection with your with your interviewees? Or I mean, does the field have any space for this kind of methodology? Or were you really out on a limb? in uncharted territory and doing that kind of that kind of interview. Yeah, so the methods class I took didn't suggest this either, but everything in me told me this will not work in Japan on this topic. And that was one of Wilfred Campbell Smith's advice, leave methodology and concepts behind when you go to the field, just be in the field. And so I did. And it was only after I got back, thankfully, I met Inez Telemontes, who founded the doctoral level uh, study of indigenous religions at UC Santa Barbara. And so she helped me kind of create the theory and the methods after the fact. So then I could tailor it to what I had found instead of getting railroaded into seeing things that were not happening. And back then there were a couple of things that helped me, but it was mostly her. She's a force of nature. She just affirmed that I was doing valid research. And so it was her affirmation that uh, kept me going, I guess, and uh, determined that I would complete this research. And so I've written about it in my first chapters of the books, the academic books, to explain my methodology, my concepts. But they all came on 2020 hindsight of what I had done, not as a plan for how to do it. But I do hope that it can serve as a plan for others. And it's very much about self-reflexivity. And I talked about second person, which maybe doesn't quite work that way grammatically, but it's not the first person, it's not the third person, but it's in the relationship between the two that is where the body of the material comes from. And so that I hope others can find a way to approach the material, seeing relationship as the center of information. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like self-reflexivity, pretty much every ethnographer would say that they do that. But I, I think it's often 
intellectual or mental in nature and not emotional or relational, which is something that I think is is different about your work. Yeah. And especially healing. You can't research healing if you're not bringing your whole self to the table. That's the perfect pull quote. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing everything that you're sharing. So I want to move on to talk about your next book, but uh, before we leave bringing Zen home behind. I just wanted to mention to the listeners that all the links for these books are in the show notes. So if somebody wanted to go in and check out the other eight practices of healing based on Japanese domestic Zen, then you can follow the links there. So let's go to the next book that came out in 2019, Painting Enlightenment. Not not so much of an explicit focus on healing, but there's a great story about how you came to write this book. Yeah. So one of the women I was working with on bringing Zen home, she called me up one night and said that she's finally understood emptiness by going to an exhibit of Heart Sutra-based paintings. And so she says, now I'm, I'm finally getting a sense of healing. And that was something she had not felt so poignantly before. And so that began my whole journey with this artist whose explicit intent was to actually have his grandchildren understand the Buddhist teachings, and he did not want to preach to them. So he came up with these paintings to convey the teachings and with the aim that they would be healed from the various woes that people have about loneliness and, again, the ignorance, the delusion, the hatred, the aversions, the greed or the attachments. And so what I have seen with this book, Painting Enlightenment, is he did, he was effective in doing that. So many people, upon seeing his artwork, do have a more expansive perspective of themselves and their life conditions and are finding healing just like that woman did. And even though the topic was not explicitly like bringing Zen home, what are they doing to heal? The effect of these this artwork has been healing. And so this book, you got a hold of his whole collection of paintings after he passed away and, and reproduced in beautiful color a lot of these paintings. And they're, it's just an absolutely stunning book. And you've got into Iwasaki's life story and the story behind each one of the paintings and are really, I think, doing justice to him bringing his work out to the public in a way that I think he would be quite happy with. Yeah, it, his he was not known in Japan. He did do that one exhibit in the Nagoya Museum, but he was just working in the back room in his house. And people are like, you know, he comes out for two o'clock for tea in the afternoon. And it's just like Papa's doing his thing in back. And his family, wonderful people, but they didn't have that uh, perspective of uh, Buddhist art history. So they had no idea he had he was doing something so profoundly new in the tradition. And so when I saw it, because uh, I had some background, I was like, oh, my God. And so he, I'm so grateful. I mean, the circumstances that came together to enable uh, this to happen were not a foregone conclusion. You know, if that woman hadn't have called me and there weren't one more day on the exhibit and just so many things that worked out that it has the sense of, I'm just part of something much bigger going on. And I'm just grateful that I get to be part of it. Yeah. And and you also exhibited the paintings at uh, Louisiana State, at, at, among other places, if I, if yeah. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Louisiana State University's Museum and the Crow Collection in Dallas and the Morikami Museum in Florida and a few other places and the art I 
now it needs to rest a little bit after being exposed to so many UV rays, but I am open to working with other museums. Cool. So since that time, since 2019, you've been a little bit busy with two new publications that I also want to talk about. So the Oxford Handbook of Buddhist Practice is a co-edited volume that you did with with Kevin Trainer that came out in 2022. So in the introduction to this volume, you and Kevin frame this book as being about embodiment and sense mm -hmm. experience. And so mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about why did you choose to focus on these two topics, embodiment and sense experience? Yes. So this book, Kevin Trainer approached me. He's a Sri Lankan specialist, works on relics. And he too, although he works with texts and quite frankly, being a white male, he's had a different experience in the field than I have in the academic field. But he approached me to work on this together because I'm in East Asia, but I work with embodiment and ritual. The field of Buddhist studies has quite logically focused on textual materials because that's what scholars had access to much harder to travel 150 years ago. So getting the text uh, was a good beginning. And it also is stemming from the concept of logos. What is in the words is where the truth lies. And so these Western scholars think that's what you need to do is get what the words are. And a lot has been learned about the Buddhist tradition through that mode. But most people did not read these texts, most Buddhists throughout history. So what were they doing with their bodies became an important way to reframe the focus of scholarship. Instead of what were they reading or thinking, but what were they doing? And of course, our bodies are filled with emotions and the Buddhist tradition has something to say about the senses. And so those, so the senses and the body became a way to see what Buddhists did in their lives and not just what they thought about. And that's that's where I think the field is shifting to take seriously. It's a Western predilection or preference or interest in what's happening with the mind or thinking, consciousness, but consciousness doesn't stop at the cerebellum. I mean, consciousness is in how you do everything. In fact, in, in Japanese uh, Buddhist teaching always begins with teaching the body how to move. And we approach scholars, 30-some authors, many of them senior scholars, and we see this volume as trying to steer the field to make it more understood that there is a tremendous amount of scholarly rigor required to look at practices, what people are doing with their bodies and their emotions, and looking at who has agency and who has authority in ascertaining what's going on in the Buddhist tradition on these fronts is uh, one of the major kind of theoretical undercurrents of the book. It's, I think, I want to use the word, it's safer now to talk about Buddhist practice and not be seen as someone who's too emotional or too engaged with the tradition that they can't be doing serious scholarship. Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> this focus on the body, it's a good bridge over to your most recent book, which apparently you just submitted the manuscript uh, or just submitted the corrected proofs. What, what was it? A couple of days ago, right? You said? Yes, a couple of days ago. Yeah, fa fabulous. So the new book is The Little Book of Zen Healing. Japanese Rituals for Beauty, Harmony, and Love. And this one is coming out with Shambhala, so some mm -hmm. uh, a press that will be widely marketed to Buddhists, to meditators, to the general public. And so it does strike me, you know, in looking at the description, that it's maybe taking some of the gems from your scholarship and putting it forward in a kind of an accessible way for a wider audience. So, Paula, what brought you to writing this particular book? 
It was during the pandemic, the the early part. I wouldn't say we're out yet, but the early part. And I, I'm not a huge opera fan, but I had started going to uh, the Met uh, at the movie theaters. So I got a phone call in that fall of 2020 or late summer of 2020. And uh, it was from Peter Sellers, who is a big opera director. And I was surprised. And then he said that bringing Zen home got him through that first summer of the pandemic. And I'm like, wow. And so he said, so write a version (laughs) of the book that can reach people. There's so much suffering there. Reach reach regular people. Get out all the academic methodology, theoretical stuff. Just give us the stories that will move us. And so I that's what I did over the what became more than a year of being at home. So I wanted to reach a broader audience. So the core is still what the women in Japan taught me. But I got stories from people from different backgrounds in the U.S. and weave those in. And I found the people in the U.S. were really drawing on some of these same types of activities. So anyways, that's uh, so uh, the backstory of how I got this book written. And because it's aimed for a larger audience, I realized I had to explain what does ritual mean. And when I broke it down, I realized it's really about how to move with your full body mind in a way that has meaning and you are conscious about what you're doing. I see ritualizing an act is to imbue it with meaning and intention and to be consciously engaged with your life and the people around you and your circumstances. And so I go from the personal individual to taking ever in expanding circles of concern of the people around you and out to the environment and out to the cosmos. So at these different levels of engaging with ritualized behavior, considering who is affected by the way I am acting right now. Yeah, beautiful. So as you were talking, I was also reflecting on that time when I first heard you speak at that conference in Leeds that we were talking about earlier and thinking about that as a kind of a ritual performance in the same way that you were just talking about, right? I mean, we can we can argue against the entrenched part of the academy that doesn't want to allow for certain kinds of sensitivities, certain kinds of kind of emotional investment, certain kind of subjectivity, a certain kind of empathy in our scholarship, right? We can argue against the establishment on and on and on, but you can also stand up in a academic setting and perform the ritual of demonstrating a new kind of scholarship and perhaps transforming the way that the that the people in that room receive and think about ethnographic work or the way that they think about scholarship. I mean, certainly for me, that was a transformative moment to see you do that. So I don't know if that resonates at all with what you're saying right now for you, but I was just thinking on the power of action in a setting like that to make change and to carve out a space for a different kind of discourse to happen. Yeah, I I take this stuff very seriously. So I out of respect for the listeners and the readers, I want to bring my whole self. I want to engage my whole being and that's just something I had to do. And now that looking kind of back, you don't have to put this in the recording, but they did not accept my paper for their publication for the journal that was supposed to be a composite of all the papers. I even rewrote it. I put a framing on it that was more theoretical. They still wouldn't take it. Anyway, that they were not ready for that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I think I think that might be worth including in the, in okay. the podcast just because I, the these 
these are not just preferences that we're talking about when we talk about the exclusion of certain kinds of scholarship or this exclusion of certain kind of perspectives. These aren't just preferences, but these are actual policies, whether spoken or unspoken. They're policies that have direct impact on scholars' ability to get publications and to get tenure and to be respected yes. in the field and so forth. Oh, and so, yeah. so, Paula, we've been discussing the resistance to including to this more sensitive or empathetic ethnographic method that that you employed. And I think you've also implied a few times the misogyny of the academy more generally. So I'm just kind of wondering what kinds of roadblocks that you've had in your career related to sexism and how you've navigated those. Do you think the field is changing or how can the field change for the better? To begin with, my uh, beloved advisor for my dissertation, he did not speak with me for a year, literally turned his head the other way if we were walking down the street opposite coming towards each other. He would ignore me for one year because I wanted to do my dissertation on Zen Buddhist nuns and go live with them because there's nothing written on them. I couldn't go to the library and do this. I had to go ask them what they thought and how they lived. And the reason he didn't speak with me was because he thought I would never get a job because Diana Paul, who had done uh, translation work and interpretive work of sutras that had not been translated before, and it's not easy to translate, was denied tenure at Stanford for her book. And so he thought he didn't want me to have that fate. By the time I finally did finish, I did have four job interviews, I mean, four job offers, uh, but because people wanted to I'll say this out loud. People wanted to have the perception that we are not against women scholars working on women. So I given the job offers and I did take a job and not that it was totally because I was working on women, but there's a bigger context. But I ended up uh, uh, before tenure uh, leaving for another job. And then that job too, I left before uh, finishing going through a tenure review and ended up at a public university. These other were private schools. And there was part of that uh, movement was related to who does the reviews and how do they review you. I was even told that one of the tenure review that I did not complete that one of the letter writers was female and so we and it was very positive so they just won't so that's just to be ignored. I was like, "Wow, you're really telling me this out loud?" <laughs> So uh, I did find safety at a public university because they have to be a little bit more transparent. So I kept a low profile and I am delighted. I actually just retired from LSU, Louisiana State University, and I'll begin an appointment at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley. And what's fabulous about this is uh the it's a Jodo Shinshu based institution originally, and the True Pure Land Buddhist women spearheaded a campaign to endow a chair that's named after two Buddhist women central to that tradition, Kakushi Eshini and Kakushin Ni, uh, the wife and daughter of Shinran, the founder of the True Pure Land sect in Japan in medieval times, and so I get to be in. The is the first steward of this chair, the Eshini Kakushini Chair of Women in Buddhist Studies. And it's uh, still surreal to me. I'm profoundly honored and grateful. But from where I came, where I felt like I was speaking in a vacuum before, it's like someone found the volume control <laughs> and can start hearing discussion of women in Buddhism and take it seriously. I, I do think the field is a bit better because now there are senior women scholars who can write reviews and support uh, women coming up the pike before it was mostly a male world. 
that the gatekeepers were writing reviews for book manuscripts or for tenure or other nodes of decision-making turning points. Now there are people who are women in positions of power and men who are more aware of some of the traditions that have kept women out and their voices out. So that is that is changing, although there is more room to grow. And I do see in my own past uh, times where I had to apply the teachings that the Zen nuns I was studying, I have had to stay close to my values in terms of the academy and so I have not let them push me away from the table. I've had to work at it. I've had to be persistent. I've moved to many places and I will say it was not easy but I do think the field is changing in a way that hopefully women don't have to work this hard to be taken seriously. Amen. Or sadhu, sadhu, sadhu is the, the <laughs> Buddhist equivalent. Um, so, Paula, thanks so much for sharing everything that you've shared with us. And uh, I'm wondering if there's anything else that you want to talk about. Any anything that we missed? Any thoughts that are uh, bubbling up about something we talked about earlier, or any upcoming projects that you wanted to mention? before we said goodbye? Well, I Tricycle put out this little interview on my new position at the Institute of Buddhist Studies. They entitled it something like, I'm trying to heal Buddhist studies. And at first I thought that was a bit arrogant to suggest that that's what I'm trying to do. But I actually think maybe that's what I've been trying to do, is heal the field. And the people who are in the field that... If we're spending all this energy dedicating decades of our lives and it doesn't leave the world and the people in it, ourselves and the people around us, in a place with a bit more peace and joy and love, then what are we doing? So I am more accepting of that this is just the way I want to live my life. Yeah, that's a great way of encapsulating where I'm at too. I think uh, I agree with you 100% that if we're going to dedicate our lives to a particular profession, particular institution, what what have you, then that becomes, by default, that is the field in which we must bring the healing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so thank you for sharing your thoughts and your scholarship and your heart with us today. And yeah, really, really enjoyed seeing you and speaking with you and look forward to the next time. Oh, likewise. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me. And I'm very grateful for this opportunity to engage with you. And I look forward to more. Uh, Thanks, Paula. That's it for today from us at the Blue Barrel Podcast. This episode was hosted by Pierce Alguero and produced and edited by me, Lan Lee. All of our music is by Jonathan Pettit, and our interns are Meda Ghosh and Nathan Santos. If you're listening to us on one of our partner podcasts, make sure to catch all of our episodes on piercealguero.com or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also support us by making a donation at patreon.com slash blue barrel. Until next time, be happy and be well.